this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Have you listened to our All the Books podcast yet? On All the Books, Book Riot resident Velocireader Liberty Hardy and several rotating co-hosts discuss the week's most exciting and intriguing new book releases from every genre. Stay up to date on the best new books with new episodes every Tuesday and get bonus recommendations for older books every Friday with the All the Backlist drop-in episodes. Never miss the buzz on the best new releases. Listen to All the Books on Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. That's all the books. Go check it out. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 314. We're recording on Friday, May 31st, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. I mean, I guess you're remote, so it's no less here or more here than normal. <laughs> it just feels different to say you're here when you're recording yeah. remotely. We're always coming to you through a series of tubes. They're just in a different <laughs> yes. place this time. Al Gore's tubes. <laughs> uh, straight from Al Gore's tubes. See, we're coming to you from... Like, this is very abstract. and like, <laughs> None of this is right. It's all a metaphor for the internet. But here we are recording another edition of the Book Riot Podcast, a special episode this week. Rebecca has been at BEA, Book Expo America, in New York for the last couple of days. We'll talk more about that. Um, do you have another? Are you done or do you have more afternoon? Stuff I am to do? done. I, well, I have okay. business things to do, but I don't have to go back into the Javits Center. Ah, so my gotcha. BEA experience has concluded. All right. So we'll talk about that in a minute. We've got a whole, whole bunch of listener feedback about dedicated e readers. Um, but before we get to that, let's do a sponsor so we can get to a nice big batch. The follow up is too much to do. Usually we do a follow up spot. Um, between the read yeah. and the first right sponsor, top. but we don't have time for it. We, we got to get right to the spot. So tell us, tell us about our first sponsor. I am delighted to tell you that this week we are sponsored by Rebel by Beverly Jenkins. This is about Valinda Lacey. Her mission in New Orleans is to help the newly emancipated community survive and flourish. But when thugs destroy the school she is set up and then they target her, Valinda runs for her life and straight into the arms of Captain Drake Levesque. As an architect from an old New Orleans family, Drake has a personal interest in rebuilding the city. He was raised by strong women, he recognizes Valinda's determination, and he can't stop admiring or wanting her. But when Valinda's father demands that she return home to marry a man she doesn't love, her daring rebellion draws Drake in closer. Rebel is the first novel in Beverly Jenkins' compelling new series that follows a northern woman who goes south in the chaotic aftermath of the Civil War. Her historical romances are always deep and emotional, and the steamy romance between Valinda and Drake will continue that tradition. Beverly Jenkins also always includes real historical elements in her novels, and in her novels, and Rebel will definitely leave readers feeling fascinated by the authenticity. Um, I was in New Orleans a couple years ago and learned a ton about the history and the really complicated relationships that um, people had, people of color especially, um, moving into town or dealing with... Um, marriage and like she's talking about architecture but real estate was really interesting uh, at that time in the country and i think this is going to be fascinating i love beverly jenkins so that is rebel by beverly jenkins it's out now wherever books are sold kick off reading a new romance series to make your summer steam 
All right, BEA. So um, presumably some people listening to this show have never been to BEA, don't know what BEA is. Um, I guess I'll do this part since you've got to tell me like actual content about sure. BEA. Book Expo America, the, the largest trade show um, in North America for the publishing industry. It's changed over time, even since we've been doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess maybe this is part of what I can ask you about what the point of it is. <laughs> uh, it's changed over time and it has, a, has had a bit of an identity crisis over time, but basically a chance for the book industry to come together from booksellers to book publishers to media to be in the same place and have the, you know, the, have the chance to talk and connect with a whole bunch of people in the same physical space. Now, as the internet has changed, everything about everything, BEA is no different. And it's a little unclear these days what BEA is for. You can get galleys to books um, online. You know, galley drops and author signings and author talks, these are the things of the old days. Um, Booksellers can browse catalogs online. You know, some of what BEA has been historically about is book retailers sitting down with publishers and going through their catalogs Mm -hmm. and see what they want to stock. Um, book publishers meeting with editorial um, entities for you know for people to plan their coverage. What books you want to write about? For us, we do some of that. We also do some talking to publishers about books they want to advertise um, on Book Riot. So that that's the that's the kind of um, you know that that's the lay of the land. Um, but it's changed over time, and even since we've been doing, I felt like it was more bookseller oriented lately. When we first started doing it, would you say like? Your first BA thing was 2010 or yeah. 2009. Mine first one was 2011, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And back then it felt more like an industry event. And now it's a little unclear to me. I've been recently. Um, what, what's your sense yeah, of where, you know, what's the state of BEA? I, at this the point, state Rebecca? of BEA, you know, well, to, we'll get the sickest burn out of the way first. BEA okay. was um, advertising itself this year as like the reimagined book expo. And mm. I was talking with a friend yesterday. We were, and I was like, well, is this it? Have we experienced the reimagined book expo? And they were like, well, Shinsky, it's as imagined as it's ever been. <laughs> um, I, I, I've been blogging or like it's been 11 years now since I started my blog. And I think... 10 since my first BEA. I haven't gone to BEA all 10 years. But yeah, in the like back in the mid 20 like 2010, 2009, 2010, it felt huge and mm. I've been trying to sort out if that's because it was new and I was like a wide-eyed baby book blogger. Um it was undeniably larger then than it is now. Yes. The show has contracted a lot. Some of the major publishers are no longer getting booths or they're experimenting with other ways to reach the people that they're trying to reach because they don't need to get everybody together in one physical space anymore thanks to the internet. Um it's but in like 2010 2011 2012 it was sort of flooded with bloggers like yeah, publishing had, right. book blogging was huge publishing had recognized that there was value to be found in having relationships with book bloggers and reaching the audiences that bloggers had and so there were just a ton of book bloggers getting media badges and attending signings and long lines to meet authors and do coverage of all kinds and i think that that like mass of people made it feel full, really full. Um, I also used to see a lot more librarians, I think, um, Mm. at BEA. And in the last couple of years, as BEA has reimagined itself, 
the um, they've contracted the number of media passes that they'll give. Um, bloggers used to get sort of funneled into go to BloggerCon, um, which I don't think is a thing anymore. Um, and it does feel this year, it felt very um, much more like bookseller centric that publishers were sort of back to the roots of BEA mm. to use the time to get their authors in front of booksellers, um, a little bit in front of media to look for coverage, but really they're sort of doing that core job of impressing the booksellers with the books they have coming out in hopes that those booksellers will stock them. Um, it felt like the last time I was in the Javits for BEA was 2015 because it was a, it was in Chicago mm -hmm. in 2016 and I haven't been since then. And that 2015 one was like smaller, but I don't think they realized it was going to be smaller. So it took up the same amount of space in the Javits building, but there was, it felt like there were ghost town sections, mm -hmm. like things were kind of spread out. It felt a little dead. The energy was really low. And I don't know how it's been the last couple of years, but this time, um, instead of it being like 24 rows of things, there were like 18 rows, maybe, maybe even fewer than that of booths to see. And then a whole separate section um, that they called Unbound that had vendors who do sidelines and sort of book related gifts. Um, I think that's going to be a big part of BookCon happening mm. this weekend. But condensing it into a smaller space made it feel full again, you know, by bringing mm -hmm. everybody a little closer together. And the energy was good. Like the vibe was good at this book mm -hmm. expo. Um, nobody seemed to be worried that the sky was falling about anything in particular. So that was nice. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my overall notes from the land of book so, expo. It, it, but in a nut, it doesn't feel that different than nine years ago, just smaller. Yeah, I mean, is yes. that the, the major takeaway? Yeah, like, I don't know I what mean, you, we, we've talked about this before privately and maybe on the show before. <laughs> I can't remember that. I don't even know what a re like that you walked in like, yeah, wow, yeah, this I, is different. I don't even know what that would be. Like, yeah, what would the point of it be? I don't even know that it needs to be reimagined. Yeah. Like, it seems to do the thing that it's intending to do, which is give publishers a chance to connect with key customers, be they media yeah. or booksellers or bloggers or librarians, about the books that they're working on. Um, yeah, that that I, it's it seems to have recovered from the identity crisis, I would say. But I would like to let BEA know it doesn't need to reimagine itself anymore. Like it's just fine. No one is expecting a party. It's good. like we're all going to a convention. It it doesn't need to have glitter like falling. BEA twenty twenty. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I would appreciate some truth in advertising. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It'll um, be fine. Yeah, there were you know, always a few notable, like big deals. And one of those this year was Stephen Chbosky, who wrote The Perks of Being yes. a Wallflower, has a new novel coming out called Imaginary Friend. I believe it's horror. Um, there was a huge line for him. Uh, Jenny Slate, who played Mona Lisa on Parks and Rec and, you know, is a wonderful comedic actress and wrote a children's book about Marcel the Shell. And she has a little, a book called Little Weirds that's coming out. I got to see her. She seemed to be one mm. of the darlings of the show. Um, Jasmine Guillory's next romance, The Wedding Party, was getting a lot of buzz. And I fangirled for maybe the first time in my life, <laughs> mm. accidentally, because um, I'm not a like a book 
fangirl person, but mm-hmm. I thought I would report back. Um, Jan, our sales director, and I were just, you know, standing in between meetings. And this woman walked by who I recognized. And before I knew what was happening, I was like, oh, my God, you're Sean Korn. I love you. She's a, um, like, a famous yoga teacher. She has a book coming out. She runs a program called Off the Mat that's, uh, like, retreats and workshops that bring social justice into yoga. And she was very nice while I was, like, word vomiting at her. And then she walked away and Jan was like, that's not a book person, right? Because you wouldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what just happened. Something just overtook my body. Um, So that's another BEA highlight. (laughs) Tell me about the banners, the big ones. Any Um, notable ones that stuck out to you? So Javits is a giant aircraft carrier for humans, basically. (laughs) Um, And they have these big atrium spaces where in times past, um, Mm -hmm. publishers would buy giant banners like you know 20 feet tall or 20 feet wide and eight feet tall to publicize the biggest books and it's a pretty good indication of what you know where the the publisher money is at that particular moment those things we still don't know how much they are little birdies out there would Mm -hmm. i'd love to know what those cost to produce and how much um uh, read expo which runs bea charges for them um did you any stick out I didn't pay attention to the banners. Oh, Rebecca, I'm so you're killing sorry. me here. I'm so sorry, Jeff. I was just hustling. Mm. There was yeah, one, okay, there was a big enough. one for something called Scarecrow, and I noticed it because I met someone under it mm-hmm. <laughs> for a meeting. I'm sorry. I do have a report about the weirdest book pitch I heard. Okay, yes, let's do that. Okay, so one of the things that happens at BEA is like when they're trying to get you to take a galley, sometimes folks from the publishers will be standing in the aisle, like waving the galleys and shouting their, you know, very quick elevator pitch at you to get you to take it. And I'm walking down an aisle and I hear somebody going, it's a Christmas carol, but with Emperor Palpatine or Palpatine, what, whatever. <laughs> oh my gosh. Palpa, whatever from Star Wars. Yeah, right, right. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. What is this going to be? Well, it, it's Marley by John Clinch. It's a reimagining mm-hmm. of a Christmas carol, but about the relationship between Ebenezer Scrooge and Jacob Marley. And I have spent the last 24 hours trying to figure out what the Emperor Palpatine thing is even about. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Unless they just made up, you know, grabbed some words that would be interesting. I guess Palpatine is Scrooge. Marley's the ghost of Christmas past, right? I can't remember. My Dickens is a little rusty for Christmas carol, especially. I don't know where Palpatine would would, would figure. That that is an odd one. And he doesn't like there are no there's no borrowing from the star wars universe here mm-hmm. it's just a straight up reimagining of something that happens in a christmas carol um which john clinch has sort of done this thing before yeah. he did finn which is a reimagining of huck finn um and i was like okay i'm very confused <laughs> <laughs> yeah john clinch i think was the first author i ever interviewed back in my early blogging days oh really finn. i think so if i remember this right um my blog is now no longer, so I can't go look it up. But I remember liking Finn <laughs> That's a great deal. Um, were there so the hot galleys? So the the any anything? I know there was uh, Kelly was looking for a patchet. Yes. Apparently, I heard there's a. Bardugo's new book is that's for adults mm, yes. was a hot item. I heard there were copies of Morgan Stern's The Starless Sea mm-hmm. floating around. There Any were, other ones catch indeed. your attention um, um, that you were interested in? I did not make it to the editor's buzz panel, but I heard folks talking about Saeed Jones and um, yeah. the book is 
This is why we this fight. This is why or we something? fight, or this is how yeah. we fight, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's supposed to be really great. And I've been hearing buzz about, ooh, it's a Knopf title. I think it's called The Secrets We Kept. Hmm. Okay. Um, that I went to a luncheon for Hachette and uh, at the luncheon I was sitting next to a bookseller who was telling me about this Knopf title that she really loved. Mm. Um, but I'd been hearing about that. And then maybe of note to our listeners is everybody was talking about audiobooks, about either... Darn about, right they were. Mm-hmm, about either like we have the, you know, we have the hardcover rights for this, but someone else has the audiobook rights or we're trying to sell the audio rights, we're trying to get the audio rights. Mm. Like, it seems that um, publishing really has gotten the message that audiobooks are a thing and need to be you know what we want more titles in audio and they're figuring yeah. it out um so i heard about audiobooks all over the place it's pretty cool. i mean the the same mental space audiobooks took up in the reader's mind up until really i feel like five years ago even was a different mm-hmm. world for audiobooks yeah um has been where it was in publisher's mind too kind of an afterthought, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Like you wouldn't even have day and date audiobook releases with the with the print copies, which seems right. completely strange now. And this still happens, frankly, less than it used to. Um, the review copies were hard to get. You know, just just the whole ecosystem around audiobooks being a vibrant and vital piece of the book industry um, is still new, and they seem to still be catching up with it. There, there are books that I was looking at one. I don't even remember what it was, a new book I was looking for that doesn't have an audiobook version. Still, hmm. um, I kind of feel like for, for, let's say you're a big five publisher at least, and it's not a cookbook or I don't know, something that doesn't really like a, a crafts book that may not yeah. lend itself to audiobooks especially. But if it's a prose book, you know, mostly, you know, your standard nonfiction fiction, and you're not going to do an audiobook, I wonder if you think about, are you gonna, why should you publish it at all? Like if you're not going to do an audiobook, don't bother. Might hmm. be not a bad you know, heuristic for whether or not something is worth <laughs> worth taking on because people care about them. Um, we still don't see breakouts in what percentage of a title's selection or audio, but we do know for some titles, like 30, 30 to 40% of some titles are audiobooks. I'm guessing some business books or mass market nonfiction might even be higher mm-hmm. than that for the amount of audiobooks I'm seeing there. That's That's really interesting to see too. The other, there is a funny, Jenny Slate is like, I don't want to besmirch Jenny Slate. I like Jenny Slate. But a C-list celebrity, like in the real hierarchy of things, but in BEA terms, she's an A-lister. Like You've got to adjust for um, the the thing. And I remember there was some... Oh, Rick Springfield. You know, Jenny's girl, Rick Springfield. We were at BEA for that. And like... A one-hit wonder from the '80s, and it was mm-hmm. like that was a big. It was deal. like Beyonce showing up yep. for BEA. Um, <laughs> so it's always funny to see kind of the altered world of um, celebrity status. Yeah, I feel status. like I passed Coolio at BEA a couple years ago. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, did that just that just happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no one. I don't think there was anybody of that sort of like occupying that particular strange part right. of celebrity this time around but yeah jenny slate she's very charming mm-hmm. um, and yeah high on she's also very bookish so that was nice but yeah she was one of the bigger famous people that you could have bumped into and i don't think i really saw anybody else there saw was anybody some, else yeah no. there was a long line for um how to raise a reader by pamela Paul, oh yes she's a co-writer that's a book about 
how to raise a kid who mm-hmm. loves books. And that's, you know, straight into the wheelhouse of basically anyone who's attending BEA. I was like, that's yeah, smart. I saw that. that was on the cover of Publishers <laughs> Weekly. It's coming out from work, Workman in, yeah. the, in the fall. I'm guessing people just want that book, right? I mean, yes, I think so. Yeah. Interesting to see that there. Any other thoughts before we move on from BEA? Anything you noticed? Oh, how about the... Um, the 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 tech the tech part um tech at one point part? there was huge tech yeah. alleys where self publishing and you know get your galley mm-hmm. online and all this sort of stuff around technology and then also self publishing i think when we first started that was a major source of yeah. new um, bookings for BEA in terms of taking up table spaces and, and you know, uh, like I little stalls. It was there was a lot less technology. There were also mm. a lot fewer um, self-published authors around and sort of self-publishing platforms. I didn't really see much of yeah. that. And I, my best guess is that that has to do with also BEA sort of returning the focus to being about booksellers sure. and publishers. Um, so it was quieter in that way. I didn't see any really like crazy stuff for tech. There were a few like storytelling apps that were advertising. Uh, like, mm. You can uh, license us your book and we'll put the story into this app with characters that look like video game characters and sort of you do a like choose your own path through parts of the story. I saw a couple versions of that. Um, there was no virtual reality this year. I got to do, <laughs> I, I remember doing VR at VEA several uh. years back. There's no VR this year. Um, and notably the Scientologist booth did not have anyone in a wild costume. Usually it's Did like, they have the red carpet? They did, did they have, have the, the red cushy, carpet? yes. They did have the cushy red carpet, um, but there, were, there was no one in like a pirate outfit asking you to take a personality test, which is maybe the first year that I've seen the Scientologist like, be a little bit lower key. Wow. BEA. Yeah. If, if you're BEA, you're worried about that. You know, is it, is it the, the, pirate, the pirate test? Yeah, if know, we have a pirate, we're healthy. If we have a pirate, we're not healthy. And, so for those of you who don't know, this is the Scientology imprint and you know, the L. Ron mm-hmm. Hubbard stuff. Yeah. And they historically would have a very large booth area with red carpet mm-hmm. and a bunch of displays that no one is looking at. I never understood the no. value proposition of them going there, but they did it without fail. And I, they were a staple uh, yeah, I remember my very first BEA um, being with a bookseller friend. And when we like walked down that aisle, she was like, oh, we're on the fancy carpet. This is the Scientology aisle. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. That's the dead giveaway. Like you can, you just, you have a secondary sensory indicator that you need to move once you <laughs> felt the, the, the red carpet <laughs> under your feet. It is interesting to think about the, the, the height sort of peak blogger which happened probably five or six years ago, maybe before. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think probably right around the time Book Riot itself got fired up. We may have been at Peak Blogger. And some of the things that happened is social media algorithms really hurt. Um, you yeah. know, Twitter and Facebook and those places where people were going really hurt that. I think as Goodreads has continued to gain descendants and now BookTube, I think, has taken up a lot of the same oxygen and energy that would go into making your own book blog. Um, you know, those secondary, well, those non text, they're not mm-hmm. blogs, they're cha- social media channels, Instagram, there's a lot of Instagrammers. Um, Goodreads and YouTube have taken up a lot of the space um, where we sort of cut our teeth uh, as amateur pro prosumers yeah, of know, book the book industry. I remember, I think I remember you telling me about one of the BEAs in the last couple of years, maybe, and seeing a bunch of booktubers and like people yeah. with their selfie sticks holding their phones, like doing mm-hmm. the whole recording thing. And I didn't encounter that 
either. Um, and I would guess that's also something about tightening up the number of like bloggers or media folks that. Well, and that might be really for BookCon, which is, you know, that's yeah, much that's more, what BookCon is, mm-hmm. that's a fan event. Like that's um, where you, if you're a reader and you go and you see your authors yeah. and you get your galleries and you buy yeah. your stuff. You know who was um, famous that I just remembered I should mention? George Takei. He was saying oh, the other day and I just yeah. walked right past his booth, but he's definitely more famous than Jenny Slate. That's, that's, that's fair. Um, who has a book coming out too? Well, very interesting. I mean, it's been steady as she goes. There was a time of real turmoil in the book industry, but I feel like for the last three to four years, there's a lot of, um, you know, stiff upper lip. It's going to be all right. It's a difficult industry, but what industry isn't? Yeah. Um, we've taken some body blows from Amazon or other platforms or the internet and selling books is hard. Selling books has always been hard. Um, is it harder now or is it just differently hard? You know, we're not in the book selling business. We, we stand on the sidelines or on the, the edge of the scrum. Um, and, you know, I think a slimmed down BEA that's getting back to some core business needs of the industry itself and not trying to be, I don't know, not trying to be E3, mm-hmm. right? One of those big video game, which is a crossover pro consumer event. They split it out a little bit. Um, and, and frankly, there's something about books that are, that's just hard to make a, a huge trade show about. You're not showing trailers, you know, you're not showing off a bunch of tech that's just a bunch of books, frankly, for better or worse. Um, and I'm not sure how else you make that into a, a vibrant and interesting thing. I, I always thought, you know, if, if I were in charge of BEA and my job was to make it really interesting, I mean, I'd want trailers for upcoming book adaptations, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff, um, that you make it more rich that you get more of the penumbra of the world of books and reading but this is a trade show and not to forget that is Mm -hmm. part of the the enduring utility of it i guess yeah i think that they're doing some of that with BookCon by bringing big celebrity authors and folks who are connected to big adaptations and those are the kinds of things that you see like at comic-con you know a big panel or a big reveal of the trailer for the next comic book movie but that distinction that though that's a fan convention and not a an industry conference is an important that's a really mm-hmm. important distinction and yeah i think that like maybe the bottom line is people aren't going to be ea for it to be interesting people are going to be ea for it to be useful yes you know right and um it did feel to me like which this returned focus and having I guess fewer audiences that BEA is trying to serve, fewer That's different good kinds of customers it. that they're trying to serve allowed it to do what it was. It felt to me this year like it does what it's trying to do and it does it relatively well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to pay $25 for a thing of chicken fingers and you're going to talk to some people about books and that's a week in the Javits and that's like, that's fine. That's how it is. <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds like let's wrap up our BEA coverage yeah. for us to our next sponsor. Then we get to the mountain of e-reader <laughs> feedback oh boy, I'm excited. that I have to. Um, uh, this episode of the Book Ride Podcast is sponsored by The Summer We Lost Her by Tish Cohen. So this is for fans of Judy Picot, Jody Picot, excuse me, comes The Summer We Lost Her by Tish Cohen, an unforgettable novel about a husband and a wife, a missing child, and the secrets that can derail even the best of marriages. It sounds like a bigger secret than you um, secretly watch the next season of the show on Netflix without the other person. <laughs> bigger secret than that. Also, if you like Anna Quinlan, this is great for you. So it was called An Astonishingly Profound and Exquisitely Written Drama by Caroline Levitt, um, New York Times bestselling author of Pictures of You, and The Complicated Family Secrets. It's an unforgettable read about a parent's worst nightmare. So... 
look, a little bit of a content warning, I think, is inherent there. You know, a parent's worst nightmare, a child, secret message, but a thriller that has that thing that so many people like about there's a secret and there's something going on um, beneath the surface of a, of a marriage and a relationship that otherwise seems fine. So that's The Summer We Lost Her by Tish Cohen. Go check it out. Thanks for them sponsoring the show. I'm not sure, outside of asking for recommendation requests, that I've ever gotten more feedback, both in volume, uh, both in unique emails, and also the um, textual density of the emails within. And so many people wrote in, thank you so much. Um, So many people told me to use their name if so or not if so. I appreciate that additional metadata about, but I cannot speak to anyone specifically here because there's just too many, (laughs) dozens and dozens, literally. Seriously? People, yes, of people saying why they like their e-reader. I'm so sorry I poo-pooed on your dedicated e-readers, friends. Well, look, there's really four, let me write it down here, okay? There's really, I'm not going to count. There's a few (laughs) major... There's clusters of um, value that people derive from their e-reader, and none of them are unexpected. Okay. Um, so let, let's go through them one at a time. The most often cited one is cost. Mm. And Michelle said this was her feedback, too. She's like, I think you're, the thing you're overlooking, or we mentioned it, that it was more expensive, is that a modern e-reader is very inexpensive. And you can get a used or refurbed couple-year-old one, which is just fine, for 80 bucks, 70 bucks. Um, whereas to get into an iPad, even a refurb one, you're looking at three, you know, two fifty to three hundred. So there is a significant cost barrier. I think you and I um, were more talking, you know, we weren't looking at value proposition. We were more looking like overall utility. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a significant thing. And people's like, I don't want to spend this. I have this. It's just fine. So there's that. It's not. So it's not really about product superiority. It's about where the value is. So that's one. It's just less expensive. Totally fine. Um, there's also the thin and lightness and battery life. That's the next thing that the, the compromises that come with an e-reader, it's an e-ink display most of the time. That's all that it does means that it can be thin and light and have very long battery life. And I'm not going to try to tell anybody they're wrong here. Uh, I'm mostly going to say like why that does or doesn't matter to me. One is I got to plug, I, I plug 10,000 things in every night. Mm-hmm. Every night I sit down and I have to <laughs> devote an hour to plugging stuff in, Right. Where I used to, where people used to write letters to each other or like do devotionals or like whatever. I'm just plugging, I'm, dong, I'm, I'm dongle searching. Dongle I'm like a, searching. I'm like a spill, I'm looking for veins of gold, but, but instead of that, I'm looking for right, the USB, USB cable. So I'm adding, adding one more thing to charge every night is not a big deal to me. So that, that's not something I'm particularly worried about um, myself. I don't read for sufficiently long. I'm, you know, my iPad, my iPad Pro has 14 hours of battery life if I'm reading. I'm not reading for 14 hours no. of time between plugging in. I plug in all my electronics overnight, and they're, they're ready the next day. If you, like, if you don't want to charge stuff in, if you don't want to charge stuff every night, that's fine. You have to use that stupid micro USB cable that the Kindles or whatever makes you use. That's fine, too. Um, so that was another one. I think most interesting to me, considering the volume of emails, how many times it was mentioned that I got this as a gift or I bought it five years ago, huh. and it's just fine. Okay. Right? Like, there, I don't know if that's endowment effect, Shinsky, or not, but like, it's what I have, and it seems to serve me just fine. It doesn't which need I to thought be was reimagined. Very interesting. What? It doesn't need to be reimagined. It doesn't need to be reimagined. I think that people either don't see the value that you can, you know, by switching out the device in your life that you're doing your e reading on, mm-hmm. um, 
or the, the, the amount of money would have to get it out of there or their habits have been formed um, around yeah, it. You know, I mean, I, I think that's really understandable because the minimum yeah. viable like, experience on an e-reader is pretty basic. You need to mm-hmm. be able to read the words on the screen, have a decent battery life. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. If it does that, and, thing and like well, we, I think we said basically that is like if all you're doing is reading prose books from one or two sources, and really on the e-reader it can only be one or two sources. You can get books from Libby or Overdrive. Um, you could get them from, you know, the the e-reader, the e-retailer that your e-reader is associated with. That's one of the big downsides. It's very difficult to switch between retail platforms. But if you're happy with Amazon, you're happy with Barnes & Noble, you're happy with Kobo, and you're willing to buy all your books through that, then it's a pretty simple thing. I think the thing that you and I were talking about is how the diversity of digital reading experiences mm-hmm. um, that we've seen flower over the last five to eight years really can't be captured by just having e-reader alone. And I'm talking, I mean, comics, you can't do it on a Kindle. I mean, you can, but it's a disaster. It's not color, blah, blah, blah. If you like digital comics at all, and Kindle doesn't you no help. And that was really the thing that got me over the hump to thinking about iP- my iPad as my primary digital reading device. Um, switching between platforms, color, illustrations, all the kinds of things that, that go with it. And, some pe- and another thing people said is like the stripped down nature of the e-reader they think of as a feature, not a book. Their email's not on it. Mm. Their Twitter's not on it. Their Instagram's not on it. I guess, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of thinking about these things this way. Like if you don't, if you don't want to check Twitter on your iPad, don't put it on there. Yeah. Um, that's not the iPad's fault. Um, and some people said, yeah, I've, you know, I should be disciplined, but I'm 50 years old now and I've learned I'm not gonna be disciplined. So, you know, I don't keep Pringles in the house cause I can't stop eating them. You know, do, do you do you about what you need to do discipline, but that's not really a, that's not really a case to say one thing, um, is better than the other. And then a lot, a lot, I mean, probably the most common feedback was, about the screens, two things about the screen. One is that the matte finish is easier to read in direct light. You know, an okay. e-ink display, you don't have to turn on the backlight. Mm-hmm. So if you're outside, um, you can read it easier, which is unassailably true. Um, that's, it's a better experience than um, an iPad outside. I read outside maybe twice a year, maybe. <laughs> um, so that's not a thing, that's not a thing for me. Um, and the other thing is the blue light of an iPad or a screen or a phone, some people feel like interrupts their sleep. Um, so that the, the, even the backlit on the Kindle, backlight on the Kindle or the Nook Glowlight Plus, or if you have an e-reader with a, a backlight, is um, a superior sort of nighttime pre-bed reading experience. There's been some studies, I looked at this a little bit later because I'd heard about this before, that that can be the case. People may not know that there's um, new features in iOS where you use a yellow light, there's a yellow light backlight basically for your iPad and you know, you can get rid of it there. But the other thing that's interesting is that no one's talking about using their Kindle for any of the other things we talked about you can use it for, whether or not you're going to watch videos or listen to podcasts or, you know, basically the all-in-one content consumption device that the iPad really is. The dedicated e-reader is just that, the dedicated e-reader. I think on its own for me, even if I did nothing else but use my iPad for reading. Now, and the other thing that didn't mention at all is like I save things I come across in my internet life to save, to read later, long-form pieces mm-hmm. that I'll read on my iPad. Very, very difficult to do on your Kindle. So if you think of it as a long-form reading device as well, um, 
it can be a lot. But those are those are things. It's, it's less expensive. I have one. It's seamless. Like if you're just going to buy a Kindle eBooks and that's what you're doing, tough to beat a dedicated e-reader. But if you're doing more than that, you start running into to, to limitations. I really do appreciate everyone's um, feedback. Only a couple of them were annoyed <laughs> that I did not share the same opinion of my preferred reading I will take device. that annoyance ratio. <laughs> yeah, only a few. Okay. Only a few. Um, I do wonder, like, peak e-reader ownership looks like it was 2015, mm-hmm. interesting, and has been eroding ever since. Young people are not buying e-readers. Yeah. Um, they're reading on their phone or they're using print, which is fascinating to see. It's A dedicated e-reader has gone from something that an early, like there was no middle, like the crossing the chasm thing. Oh, yeah. It went from early adopter to like, I don't know, what what's the other side of the tail? Late adopters? Mm-hmm. There was no middle where everyone had a dedicated e-reader and then it's gotten old. Like it went right from LaserDisc to 8-track yeah, somehow. It's weird. In the technology curve. Very strange um, to see it happen that way. If I've got any of these things wrong, podcastofbookriot.com. <laughs> I'm there. I'm sorry I couldn't respond to everyone because I didn't have a day to do it. Um, but be careful what you... I, I was glad to see it. Um, not surprisingly, people in our audience um, have opinions, yeah. but also have digital reading you know, experience. So it's interesting to hear people talk about you know, what they've tried before and what worked and what didn't. If we're going to get dozens and dozens of passionate emails about something, like of <laughs> all the things that we've talked about on the yeah. show and all the things that happen on the internet, I will take dozens of emails about dedicated e-readers, especially since I didn't have to read the emails. Right. I mean, I would guess that if you can, if you can get someone to own your e-reading device, probably you're one of your most valuable customers over time, mm-hmm. I would think, um, because of the ease of buying a book from your retail store and the difficulty of buying it from other stores. Like if I get a Kindle in my hands, I'm not buying Barnes & Noble books. I'm not buying Apple books. I'm just not. It's impossible to do. You can't even read them. It's hard enough on an iPad um, to move between retailers, though you can do it. Um, so there you go. So I'm, I'm guessing, so th- uh, one follow-up I was going to, once a couple came in, I was like, I was going to mm. reply back and ask them if any of them read comics. Um, but then I realized that that would be, you know, trying to swim into the tsunami. Um, <laughs> for those of you who emailed me or that have a dedicated e-reader that is a principal reading device to you, are you a comics reader? And if so, what do you do about that? Um, anyway, there's All that. Right. Okay, let's see. Oh, you know, here we go. Amazon, celebrities, yes. publishing. We just talked about yep. this, Rebecca, on the mm-hmm. show before, about how Amazon didn't really ever get through their self, um, not self-publishing, their um, imprint, their own direct-to-consumer, really traditional model. I don't even know what you call it necessarily, but Amazon publishing hadn't had a breakout hit, really, and they certainly hadn't attracted a big fish. And I think this person counts as a big fish in the book world. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah. This counts as a big fish. Um, Her first two books sold really well. People are still talking about them and recommending them. And so we are talking about Mindy Kaling, Mm. who um, is going to have a collection of essays coming out 
uh, next summer in 2020. The first two books were also essay memoir situations. So it sounds like this is going to be pretty similar to that. And what makes this, I think, really interesting is not just that it's coming out from Amazon Publishing. And I think what I said to you when we found out about this deal was that there must have been some really major dollar-dollar yes. bills happening, like for Amazon to get Mindy Kaling rather than one of the big five. I think she was previously with Penguin Random House. Um, so the book, when it comes out, is going to be available for free to Prime and Kindle Unlimited customers. Mm. Readers and listeners could also download the essay collection as a Kindle ebook or as an Audible audiobook, which Kaling is going to narrate herself. Um, I have listened to at least one of her previous books on audio, and it was wonderful. But that bit about, like, it's not just that Amazon got a big name to agree to publish with Amazon Publishing, but it's going to be free. Free. To Prime and Kindle Unlimited customers, which, like, that's a great benefit. Like no one's signing up for Prime so that they can get the Mindy Kaling book for free. Mm -hmm. It's just a nice benefit. That's a different value proposition than the stuff we were talking about, like gated podcasts of how big of a name would the name have to be to get you to sign up for a special thing. Um, And my only sort of like, I guess, inside publishing baseball curiosity face is about um, if you can download the book for if you can read it for free as a Prime member or a Kindle Unlimited customer, what is that going to do to the sales numbers? Um, because they and maybe do they, they don't care. care. You don't care. Yeah. You just blow it up, right? Yeah, they probably gave her enough money that she doesn't have to care yeah. about whether it'll be. And of course, it will still be a New York Times bestseller. Like I'll go on the record as feeling confident about that. She's very popular, um, but super interesting. Did I miss? Where does it say it's going to be in print? Oh, it does. Is or do we know for sure it's going to be in print? It, like, I'm looking at the end of yeah, here. It says, um, you know Kaling's what? essays will be available to free to Prime and Kindle Limited uh-huh. customers. Readers and listeners can download the collection as a Kindle ebook or as an Audible audiobook. And I that's it. There's nothing about print here. Just assumed that since most of the Amazon publishing yeah. um, stuff does come out in print also. Well, there's another question. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't say, and, and I'm not, I mean, you can't prove a negative right here unless they actually said. It's not going to be available mm-hmm. in print. It might be because if it's if it is available in print, indie bookstores who sold this book, yeah. you know, have sold like recommended. It's a it's a great recommend. Her previous books is everyone hang out without me, and then I can't remember the name of the second one. Anyway, they're great recs. Very easy mm-hmm. to recommend to people. Um, if there is if there is a print version sitting on the shelves. Are you going to push it to people? Where are you going to put it? Like this is one of those I think that would be a great litmus test for are you willing to sell the book that people want or how willing are you, right? If people ask for it and they're going to pay you twenty four ninety nine for it, you'll sell it to them. But like are you going to be more than just passive sellers of the book if it exists in print? If it doesn't exist in print, there's a lot of people or you can't buy it other places. Yeah. There's a lot of people that'd be interested in the book that just aren't going to read it. Yeah. They're just, not go, they're just not going to. Right. Which then is in the same category of problems that we talked about with the gated podcast stuff of like, if you yeah. can only listen to Roxane Gay's podcast on Luminary, there's just a bunch of people who are not going to listen to Roxane Gay's podcast who would mm-hmm. otherwise like to consume something that she makes. going to be, yeah. I'm, I think I'm going to assume it's coming out in print. I'm just, I'm going to get on that ship. Why wouldn't they say that though? Why wouldn't they say it'll also be available in print? Like, wouldn't you think that would be the next question that people have? Maybe. I don't know. And it's, it doesn't have a title yet. So there's not no. an Amazon like pre-order link. So we can't even check for uh, what formats are listed. I guess 
this is a place where I really wish we had a birdie. I'm sure that there are all kinds of like NDAs around contracts. So I would not expect a birdie to be able to tell us how much money Amazon spent to get this book. But if you happen to be connected to Amazon publishing and you know what formats it's going to be available Mm -hmm. in, hit us up podcast at bookriot.com. I I mean, though, I think that they lead with the first thing they say other than it's happening and when is that it will be available for free to prime and Kindle unlimited customers. That's meaningful to me. They're mm-hmm. saying a lot. They're saying the quiet part loud there, which is they don't care about selling the book. Yeah. Like in a traditional way of thinking about how we think about book sales, they do not care about it because what percentage of people who buy books from Amazon are not Prime or Kindle Unlimited yeah, customers? Yeah, that's true. Probably not very many, right? How many Kindle yeah, Unlimited customers know, are not Prime vendors too? I Prime think the thing Weird I'm reacting to here. here is like it feels um, – implied or assumed I think that or maybe obvious usually that like of course there will be a print edition and I think I'm looking for a like Mindy Kaling to produce original ebook and since they didn't specify like original ebook or ebook exclusive I'm still thinking there's going to be a print copy but you're right it is very interesting that it's not noted there and i you, there's at least a 50 50 chance that you're right that i think i'm i think it's better than that not because i'm smart or anything just looking at the headline the headline of this piece is mindy kaling to publish new ex- essay collection with amazon available free for prime members that's all you got to know available free for prime members is the, is the leading uh, re- leading this charge here and i think we we've been talking about you know, what would get someone to move to a paid platform? Is there a, a person, a product, an IP that would get you to subscribe to something for it and it alone? This is not thinking people are going to sign up for no. Prime or Kindle Unlimited. Mm-hmm. It's to keep you there. Yes. Right? Or, like, yeah, remind you why you like it. Yeah. yeah here, do, we're reducing churn. We're not thinking of this audience acquisition, to use the insider mm-hmm. baseball terms, which is, I think, Kaling is the right kind of profile. Yep. For that, because I don't think you have to pay her Stephen King advances. Right. You, know, you don't have to pay her yeah, James Patterson advances. It's also not like the um, Scribd original that was something about yeah. Mueller, maybe. <laughs> I don't right. even remember yeah, now, right. where we were like, why is this the thing that's supposed to be appealing? Like, this makes a lot of sense. Like Roxanne Gay novellas. Yeah. Just not sure that that's a thing that's yeah. going to move the needle. And this isn't trying to move the needle, it's trying to hold the needle. <laughs> right. I think. Hold um, the needle. <laughs> is a very interesting, very interesting. I mean, if you had given me um, an author, to, if you'd give me one pick and say, okay, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to get people interested, to keep them interested in Prime, a name people like around books that makes for a great audio book. I might have come up with Kaling. Like I, this might have been on my draft board. Mm. It might have taken me a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this is a really good fit. I think so too. It's, she has mass appeal. It's really safe content. Like mm-hmm. nobody, well, maybe not nobody because people get offended about all kinds of things. But I think there's very low right. risk of a general reader who has a Prime subscription opening up their free Mindy Kaling book and getting mad at Amazon about something that Mindy Kaling says mm-hmm. in there. Um, yeah, it feels like a fastball right down the middle, I think, in that respect. In the same way, like a few years ago, I was recommending Anne Patchett's This is the Story of a Happy Marriage to like mm-hmm. everyone who would listen um, because it's a great essay collection. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening there. And also, like you can hand it to anyone, and it's probably pretty safe. And Mindy Kaling is both interesting and safe. I also wonder, too, if this deal with Amazon Publishing 
for Kaling isn't part of some wider deal with Amazon's larger. Oh, that's you know, a good is it, question. Is there A24, which is their movie studio? Is mm-hmm. there Prime Video stuff? Like, I wonder if this is, um, we're seeing this at the ground level, but there's a larger air war going on yeah. um, under which this is just part of that larger campaign. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know enough about it's a what Kaling is doing in the other parts of her media world because she's writing and producing and doing all sorts of stuff across media. And maybe part of it, her movie deal was also, we want your next book to be with Amazon publishing. And mm-hmm. she's like, fine. Yeah. If that gets my, you know, it could right. be that. I mean, I, I don't mean to diminish the size of publishing and books and whatever, but when you compare that to a, a theatrical release or a, you know, 12 episode Amazon prime series, this is kind of a value add yeah. um, f- for, for them. So that could be part of um, mm-hmm. synergies, corporate synergies. synergies. <laughs> yeah, you know, thinking about that, Audible has that exclusive deal with um, Reese Witherspoon's yep. company. And it would be interesting to see if that turns into a Reese Witherspoon essay collection or mm-hmm. Reese Witherspoon doing something with Amazon Publishing since she's already in that ecosystem with Audible and she produces television and Audible likes to do those things or Amazon likes to do those things. Lots of, this opens the door to think about all kinds of other interesting things that could happen. Yeah, it is. And I'd love to know the dollar. Oh, I mean, yes. that's always, always we want to know because that's the thing no one talks about. Um, but how much, how much does it cost to, to do, to get Kaling's book? Because she has to know mm-hmm. that fewer people are going to read this. Well, if it's free, I wonder. Like if the if the stat you care about is unique readers, mm-hmm. say, rather than copies sold, do you get more people to read your book by making it free on yeah, Prime and, and Kindle? Like, do you even care about unique readers if the number of unique readers isn't connected to the copies sold and therefore the dollars that go in your pocket? Like, if well, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I think most people who make things like to know that people consume them, right? Like. Mm-hmm. That people liking them and reading them, you know, I would take $3 million to write something that six people read, um, but I'd rather take that $3 million and know that a whole bunch of people have the chance to read it. Yeah, I think it might also be influenced here by like, we don't have a sense of how many fewer people will read it. So if it's like you sold, and I'm just making up numbers now, I don't know how many copies her previous book Mm -hmm. sold, but if the previous book sold 10 million and they think this one is going to be read by... 7 million, but she got, you know, a lot of money for it. And it's an interesting experiment. I would take a 30% reduction in eyeballs for the value of doing the experiment, you know, trying out something new, also getting the guaranteed money, like presumably the Mm -hmm. advance here was bigger than you would get. It'd have to be, it wouldn't even be an advance because someone, they're not trying to sell the book. So you don't know how you work that out. Cash on the table. Yeah. Uh, my my normal caveat with this applies though, and I'll I'll end my comments on this here. I hate this for this reason, is that probably won't be at your library. Yeah, not for a long ass time, and I hate that. Yeah, I think that sucks. That's my least favorite thing about these kinds of deals. Um, so I'd as a heavy library user and someone who believes in public libraries, uh, I'm fascinated by this deal, um, but I wish it wasn't the case that part of Amazon's and Audible strategy largely, now there's some exception to this, mm-hmm. don't at me, is that you're not going to be able to get this at your library. Yeah, I second um, that emotion. So that 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 is, I don't want to stop um, the conversation without having said that. So that's my last word uh, um, on that. We're going to keep um, an eye on that for sure. 
I guess, Rebecca, well, I mean, we're both Prime members, I assume, right? Yes, we are. I guess we'll read it. I will definitely read it. Or I'll if probably I can re- listen, listen to, it. to it. Can you listen to it for free on? I don't even know mm. what the, the situation is going to be there. Yeah. All right. Time for our last sponsor. It's Patsy by Nicole Dennis-Ben. Okay. A whole bunch of people have called it one of the most anticipated books of the summer. Entertainment Weekly, Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Vulture, O Magazine, Vanity Fair, L, Real Simple. Just a whole bunch of people are looking forward to it. So what's it all about? This is a beautifully layered portrait of motherhood, immigration, and the sacrifices we make, and the name of love from award-winning novelist Nicole Dennis-Ben. Patsy gets her long-coveted visa to America, and it comes after years of yearning to leave Pennyfield, the beautiful but impoverished Jamaican town where she was raised. Patsy wishes to be reunited with her friend Cicely, whose letters from New York promise a happier life and a possible rekindling of their young love. But her plans don't include her overzealous evangelical mother or even her five-year-old daughter, True. Patsy leaves True behind in defiant act of self-preservation, but finds that Brooklyn is not as Sicily's treasured leisures have described. To survive as an undocumented immigrant, she is forced to work as a bathroom attendant and a nanny. Meanwhile, True builds a faltering relationship with her father back in Jamaica, grappling with her own questions of identity and sexuality, and trying desperately to empathize with her mother's decision. Passionate, moving, and fiercely urgent— Nicole Dennis-Benz Patsy charts the geography of a hidden world, that of a paradise lost, in which one, one woman fights to discover her true sense of self in a world that tries to define her. Thanks so much to Patsy by Nicole Dennis-Benz for sponsoring this show. Uh, let's do, you know, I want to talk about this, this, um, story about the script spelling bee. I know there's spelling bee fans out there. I saw the headline you put in the agenda, but I've been so in the world of book expo that I don't know what happened at the spelling bee. And I would like you to tell me. (laughs) Basically what happened is the script spelling is everyone knows by now is a cultural phenomenon where, um, students spell hard stuff. And I think in the last 10 years or so, it's really become more of a thing than it ever was before, more interest. Um, it's, you know, televised live uh, and then also in repeat. I know some people in my own personal life that look forward to it every year. It's heartwarming. It's kind of a built-in reality programming show where education mm-hmm. and language skills are the, your, um, you know, that's what you're there for. So it, it scratches a nerd heart. But also the competition has gotten much more difficult and competitive over the last several years. And I think culminating in this year, which eight students were named co-champions because basically they ran out of words. What? How is that even possible? All eight co-champions withstood 20 rounds of increasingly oh difficult words. Okay, that's a lot um, of we're words. Throwing the dictionary, we're throwing the dictionary at you, Bailey said, who was the, the host. Mm-hmm. And so far you were showing the dictionary who was boss. Um. With each correct response in the 20th and final round and roar up with the audience, they decided to, at first they said they were going to split the $50,000 prize money eight ways, but then they ponied up and each winner will get 50 grand. So this was the first time there were more than two co-champions. So there's been a tie before. Um, ranging in age, they're all 12 and 13, ages 12 to 14. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really interesting stuff. There are four Texans. Weirdly. Whoa. Um, one from California, Alabama, Maryland, New Jersey, and four Texans. Um, two from New Jersey. Good job, Texas. So there you go. They broke it. 
I think this is one of those things too. I've wondered about this of late as they've gotten more and more competitive and mm-hmm. becomes a thing a bright kids do, yeah. especially that I know, I mean, I've done some reading about like memory stuff and the science of memory has gotten a lot, a lot more advanced mm-hmm. over the last couple of years. And I wondered if at some point that the dictionary as we know it is a, con- is a Mount Everest people can climb, even, you know, these early teenagers who dedicate their extracurricular and some of their curricular life to doing it can basically vanquish yeah. um, the dictionary. I'm scrolling through this piece and one of the students who was on the Today Show this morning said that she spent 25 hours a week yeah. studying vocabulary. And maybe we're in that, now we're in the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours yeah. zone. If you can accumulate 10,000 hours over the course of a couple of years with that kind of devotion to mm-hmm. studying something and then expert level studying, I think the memory, you're, you're right, like the science of memory has gone a long way and these kids are going deep. This is not like the way we studied for spelling tests when you and I were kids. No, <laughs> like, no. Like I won the spelling bee in fifth grade and it's not because I knew how to do root words. And yeah. these kids are really able, like the, there's been a few documentaries about them, about some of the competitors where they're like, they're not just studying vocabulary and memorizing how to spell things, but they're like familiarizing themselves with, you know, with Latin and Greek and root languages and being able to take apart a word to its most basic element and guess about how to spell it if they've never heard the word before. And just, I, I feel like we just went over some hump into a new level of spelling bee where like we're in a new land now where you're right. Like it's a, it's a mountain people can climb and several of them are going to climb it. And It'll be interesting to see. If, I don't know where you go from yeah, here. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is like, do we just keep doing the spelling bee the way that it's been done? And maybe I think it's like, speed. I ooh. think the, they've mm-hmm. long let you linger, right? <laughs> um, yeah. I think you've got to jeopardy it. Mm-hmm. Um, or like take away one of the, because it's what you can ask to hear it in a sentence. Yeah, can, and it's just a way of. Let it, I mean, that stuff is stalling tactics yeah, so people right. can think about it and use their mnemonics to figure mm-hmm. out the right thing. Phone a friend. I think that's the thing they've got to do next mm-hmm. is... Make it harder. Sp- they make the, and if they can memorize all the words given enough time, you've got 30 seconds Yeah, and, and you're done. Here, here's a sense that have, how times have changed. Here are the winning words from 30 years ago. Okay. Or no, uh, 50 years ago, 1970. God, I'm it's in the same decade I was born. <laughs> the winning word in 1970 was croissant. Oh my I mean, God. that's laughable now. <laughs> Incisor was the winning word in 1975. Uh-huh. Luge was the winning word in 1984, mm-hmm. which as a 41-year-old male, I could have won. I mean, yes. literally could mm-hmm. have won with that stuff yeah. without even trying. And these were kids and it's a different thing, but... Basically, as it's it's been this script spelling bee has been conquered, which is a fascinating way of thinking about it. Um, that we've learned that the what we lo- what once thought was a meridian for human achievement and yeah. understanding is no. It's like the four minute mile. People didn't think it was possible right. until it was. Um, and so, congratulations to all. I wish um, I wish all of them the best um, and good luck, scripts. I, I be, surely they're not happy. I mean, they're happy that these kids achieved so brilliantly, 
I'm not sure they're happy that suddenly they're looking at their product. Yeah. Like, wait a minute, you know, wait was, a minute, this isn't going to work anymore. The title, I'll have to Google it for the show notes, but there was a book out this year about like what spelling bees say or are teaching us about the way that kids are learning and progressing mm-hmm. today. And I remember being like, oh, that's interesting, but I'm probably not going to read 300 pages about it. But now that this has happened, I might want to read 300 pages about mm-hmm. like what this changes in the spelling bee are telling us about other things the words here oh it's in it's it's linked here beeline oh what spelling bees reveal about generation z's new Mm -hmm. path to success yeah um i'm gonna be i'm gonna be interested in that now i'm looking at some of these words from the last round and i'm not even going to attempt to pronounce no (laughs) no no i mean you've got to get into strange you know uh borrowings from other languages medical terms Mm -hmm. uh, all sorts of stuff um to get there but you know, I, I, there is a, there is a part of this too that's like, at what point are you rewarding a behavior that you're not super thrilled by, like mm. paid coaches and thirty hours a week, and these are brilliant kids. Is this how we want them spending twenty five hours a week so they can memorize words they're never going to use? Like I I don't know. It's like we don't have great sort of is it is Jeopardy better? I'm not saying that yeah. it is, but like I just wonder too. There's a part of it that's like. We're well past diminishing returns of rewarding like spelling <laughs> acumen is something that's, and, and especially in this day and age when actually spelling kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. You can look everything up yeah, anytime. Like it's, it does seem like a weirdly Baroque kind of uh, it is. endeavor. I think that's a great question. And I would love like a where are they now in 15 or yeah. 20 years on this generation of spelling bee winners where the words have been bonkers hard and where it's really a lifestyle to be a competitive speller like how does this serve them what do their futures look like what kind of careers do they go into mm-hmm. do you end up being grateful that you learned this much discipline or like resenting your parents that you spent 25 hours a week working on spelling right. i think there's and the, the answers will probably be all over the map but some sort mm-hmm. of long-term follow-up on them would be really fascinating i mean are you getting into harvard and stuff off this like i, I literally don't know what you know yeah, yeah are they doing it for fun is it a you know we have um parents and families of means or not of means for you thinking this is a social ladder. Um, I'm fascinated by the whole thing. I'm not trying to throw shade on this. It's just, this is an interesting moment to think about mm-hmm. the spelling bee and what it engenders when yeah. suddenly it's, you know, it's lying at your feet defeated. <laughs> um, you know, is this, is this something, is this a night we want to keep fighting? Uh, so to speak. I mean, it's a great example. I mean, all these things about like, you know, the Anders Ericsson's peak and Angela Duckworth's grit, no better example than this, where it's really hard hours, learning skills, coaching, all the things that go into it. Um, And we're used to seeing this in sports where younger and younger kids are achieving at higher and higher levels. So it's not, it's just that applied to something like the dictionary never felt like, especially English, English, probably the most extensive of all, Dic- usable dictionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe the next thing you do is like each year you get a secondary language oh, interesting. Um, thrown in. I, d- I don't know. It'd be fascinating to see if you are a spelling bee aficionado um, and you know things that would benefit. You know, some follow up podcasts at bookright.com dot com. Would would love to hear them there as well. You do one more. Where do you want to go from here? I'm cooked. You feel cooked. I, I feel, feel like cooked. we're cooked. We feel good. You've been working hard. That's a good show. (laughs) As always, you can find links to this episode and all back episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. As always, the email is open, podcast at bookriot.com. 
Um, yeah, have you ever been in spelling bee? I won the, my second grade spelling bee. Okay. I lost my third grade spelling bee, and I, I used to remember the word I lost it on, but I can no longer remember it, sadly, oh, or good. I won my fifth grade spelling bee on heartthrob, and then I lost the county spelling bee on cynicism. Oh, really? Uh-huh. A portent of things to come. <laughs> I do remember losing the fifth grade citywide geography bee oh. on what to... Uh, what two countries are on the Iberian Peninsula? And I couldn't remember that the Iberian Peninsula is the Spain and Portugal. That's ah. the I will never forget that. I was going to say, now you know. <laughs> yeah, my college quiz bowl stuff. I remember all the things we got eliminated on, too. Yeah, so, I will never misspell go. cynicism again. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.